Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, another day and another couple of trillion dollars of quantitative easing. I mean, pretty soon we're going to be talking about real money here. I mean, the way they're throwing around these numbers, it's really incredible. I mean, we're already committed to spend more money, I think, than the entirety of the 2008 financial crisis. And again, this is what I was saying from the beginning. People maybe thought I was joking when I said QE4 was going to be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined, because I think it already is, and we are just getting started. You had uh, Powell come out today, or the Fed, and they announced, I think, another trillion dollars in repos or a program to backstop the commercial paper market. So now they're coming in. Commercial paper is corporations loaning money to one another short term. And apparently the Fed says, well, they want to stabilize that market, which really means they don't like what the free market is doing because commercial paper yields are rising. Now, if the economy is slowing, right, if we're going into recession, if supposedly inflation is going to be lower uh, than it was before, why are bond yields rising? Well, because everybody has a lot of debt and there's not a lot of savings in the economy. Interest rates should be a lot higher if we allowed the free market to function. But the last thing the Fed wants is for the free market to function because then it exposes the gigantic mess that they've created. So they're doing everything they can to prevent market forces from raising interest rates to a market clearing level. So the Fed has to come in with QE and they have to buy up or loan money into the commercial paper market to keep interest rates from rising. Now, you know, when they came out with that announcement, it didn't happen right away because the market had actually sold off. It was another very volatile day on Wall Street, although the Dow ended up better than 1,000 points. We closed up 1,048 points, up 5.2%. You know, this is the seventh consecutive day that the Dow has moved up or down by at least 1,000 points. I mean, this is really incredible volatility that we're seeing in the market. And who knows, maybe we're putting in some kind of a short-term bottom. We'll see uh, with all of this stimulus coming in, everything, including the kitchen sink being thrown at the market. But we were up like a thousand Dow points last night, right, in the futures market. And we opened, we were only up a few hundred points by the time we opened. So we lost those gains. And the Dow started selling off. In fact, for the first time, we got below 20,000 today. We got to 19,882 was the low. So we dropped better than 10,000 Dow points from the high. And I'm sure the Fed was pretty scared when they saw the Dow below 20,000. Because it wasn't, what, just in February, people were ready to put on their Dow 30,000 hat. We got to within 500 points of Dow 30,000. And the next thing you know, we're staring up at Dow 20,000. And I think that move down in the market had something to do with the Fed's announcement, but it probably had more to do with what was going on in the actual commercial paper market, what was happening in the bond market, because yields were rising, particularly in commercial paper. But you know what? Treasury yields are also rising and rising sharply. They were up today. As I am you know, recording this podcast, I'm looking at the yields, and the yield on the 10-year is back up to one08 so we finally have a one handle on the 10-year as opposed to a zero. 
And the 30 years at 1.68, I saw it at 1.7 even. Maybe it got a little higher, but I saw 1.7. So again, that bottom, that blow-off bottom that we talked about on this podcast is looking stronger and stronger. And imagine, where would these yields be if the Fed wasn't buying all these treasuries? I mean, who the hell knows how many they've already bought? I mean, I can only imagine how big the Fed's balance sheet is by now. But despite all of that manipulation, Yields are still rising, and obviously, too, I think there's some problem in the dollar funding market because we saw a real big spike in the dollar index today. The dollar was up broadly against all currencies. I mean, maybe 1.5% to 2% kind of across the board, up against the euro, up against the Aussie, up against the Swiss, the CAD, the yen. I mean, all the other currencies, a very, very strong dollar today. In fact, the dollar index at 99.58, up 1.5, so almost back up to 100. So this has been a pretty sharp rally. Now, I think this is a head fake. I just think this is a short-term technical type uh, rally based on the problems in these markets where markets are seizing up. So I don't think this is the primary trend. I think this is a head fake in the market. Question is, how much higher will we go? Uh, will we get above 100? Probably because we're so close. But I wouldn't imagine we'd be able to get much higher than that, given the massive quantity of dollars that are going to be created and spent into the economy. Because it's not just a Federal Reserve that came up with stimulus. We got some fiscal stimulus today announced uh, by the White House. And this is probably just the down payment on the massive fiscal stimulus that we're going to get. And in fact, after the Fed announced this new uh, commercial paper uh, repo deal, the the Dow really wasn't up that much. I mean, it initially rallied and then it started to go down again. And so it wasn't until the president came out and talked about all the money that he was going to drop from helicopters that we really got this surge in the market. And, uh, and of course, he also spoke about the bailouts at the press conference. He spoke very, very favorably to why we have to bail out the airlines. We got to do it. Also, Boeing, you know, Boeing needs a bailout now, too. You know, Boeing shares continue to collapse They were down again today. We got all the way down to 101 uh, was the low on Boeing. Uh, It rallied, uh, you know, back from that low on the bailout talks. But Boeing was almost $400 a share. The high was $398 the last 52 weeks. It got down to 101 and now it's at 124. But look, Boeing took on a tremendous amount of debt and now they can't pay it. So Boeing's going to get bailed out. We got to bail out all the airlines because Donald Trump says, you know, we need airlines. We need to have great airlines. I agree. But we need to have better management in those airlines. We have to have airlines that can handle the, the vagaries of the market and you know, have money set aside for a rainy day. We need new management to step in. But what the bailouts are going to do is solidify the current management and set up the moral hazard that it's okay to be reckless and, you know, and not set anything aside because you can rely on the taxpayer. You know, again, Donald Trump is the guy that said America will never be a socialist country. Well, then why does he want to practice socialist policies? Why can't he uh, practice the free market? You know, American capitalism, the way it works today is you get the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates artificially low. Nothing capitalism about that. And then that misdirects savings from Main Street where it might otherwise be invested in plant equipment to grow the economy and increase production and you know hire people to, to actually do stuff and, and be productive. And instead, that money ends up going to Wall Street because now the big publicly traded companies get access to the money. They can borrow in the bond market. They sell bonds. And then they take the cash they get and they buy up their stock. I mean, Boeing bought a lot of stock for probably $300, $400 a share. They were borrowing money and overpaying for their own stock. I mean, if they didn't buy back all that stock, if they had the cash, then they could weather the storm. But no, they used the cash to buy back stock to goose the stock price. And then something goes wrong and everything is, comes crashing down. But then when something goes wrong, the government steps up and bails them out. I mean, how is that capitalism? To have the government artificially suppress interest rates so that companies can borrow money for below free market rates, use it to manipulate their own share price, and then when it comes crashing down, then the government bails them out. There is nothing about this that is anything like capitalism. These are not free markets. These markets are rigged by the government. And of course, when you get all these problems, it's the free market 
that gets the blame. I mean, Donald Trump is defending the free market, but practicing socialism or fascism, whatever you want to call it. But we're giving capitalism a bad name and we're making it easier for guys like Sanders. You know, by the way, too, just uh, sidestep for a second. On the predicted markets now, the odds of Trump winning continue to fall. I'm looking right now on this predicted.com and I'm looking at who's going to win, a Republican or a Democrat, right? So if you want to bet Republican, you pay 45 cents. And if Trump wins, you get a dollar. But if you want to bet a Democrat, which is probably going to be Biden, but it could be a different Democrat because they're not naming one. But if you pick Democrat, you have to put up 50 cents to get the dollar. So this is the highest I've seen the Democrat relative to the Republican. It was the other way around. Trump was the betting favorite. The numbers were flipped before the recent coronavirus meltdown. Uh, So this sees that the president is, is losing ground, which is why he's so desperate and why Trump is trying to buy his reelection by bribing the electorate, which is what he's doing. And what he announced today at the press conference was a new fiscal stimulus. You know, initially they said it was an $850 billion stimulus. And then they came back later in the day and they said, oh, you know, we redid the numbers or they checked their math. And it turns out it's one point two trillion dollar stimulus. You know, hey, you know, what's three hundred fifty billion? Just throw it on the QE pile. We're not even going to notice it on this massively, you know, exploding balance sheet. But uh, some of that money is checks that are being mailed directly to the voters. I mean, the American public. Uh, They're going to get, I think, $1,000 checks, and he wants those things out in the mail right away. I think it's $1,000 per person. So if you're a married couple, uh, you get two grand. And I think there's extra for kids. I mean, I'm not really sure because it's not set in stone. It's just something that he's saying he wants to do, but he wants Congress to hurry up and enact it. I'm sure uh, everybody is going to vote to give money away uh, to to the voters. They're just going to make sure that the really rich people don't get anything. Uh, Trump said we're not going to give any money to, to millionaires. Uh, But, you know, there were other things that he announced. He actually gave most Americans three additional months, I think, to file your tax return. So you don't have to file in April. It's July 15th, I guess. And if you owe, you could pay three months late and there won't be any interest or any late penalties. I think as long as you owe less than a million dollars, you can take advantage of that. But if you owe more than a million dollars, then you got to pay on time. But if you owe less, you can pay three months late. And there were some other low interest loans. Uh, that they're going to be making available, but all sorts of uh, different aid packages and bailouts that, you know, comes to $1.2 trillion. So, but this is just getting started. This is the opening bid because I think we're early in this recession and we were going into this recession anyway. I mean, it's very unfortunate, I mean, for the world that we have this coronavirus situation, but I think Trump is going to try to politically uh, try to take advantage of it, even though right now, it's certainly hurting him because, you know, the Democrats can say you mishandled the crisis, you underestimated how bad it was going to be and and try to make him look bad. So Trump has to compensate now, uh, you know, with lots of giveaways. And in fact, you know, during the press conference, Mnuchin was there talking and he said, you know, it's nobody's fault uh, that we have this problem. You know, it's not people's fault that they that they can't travel and that they have to stay at home. And so because it's not their fault, We want to make sure that they get paid because they shouldn't have to suffer for something that's not their fault. Well, whoever said that? I mean, sometimes bad things happen and you just got to deal with it. As I said on yesterday's podcast, whose fault was it that we had World War II? That wasn't anybody's fault. I mean, it was the Japanese fault. They're the ones that bombed us or Hitler's fault, whatever. But it wasn't some guy running a small business. It wasn't his fault. Yet he had to deal with the consequences of his customers going off to fight a war, uh, the price of things going up because stuff was rationed. I mean, everybody had to suffer, even though it wasn't anybody's fault. I mean, that's just life. Yes, it's nobody's fault that we have the coronavirus. But, you know, that's the deal. Look, you know, I had I had somebody was renting my condo. I had some nice rentals uh, lined up. Uh, I had got supposed to have a tenant this week. I mean, my condo rents for what, five, six thousand dollars a night. And the guy canceled. He, I, I lost my rental income for like six days on uh, on my condo. I mean, is it my fault? No, it's not my fault. But I lost the income. Well, I mean, I'm not expecting the government to reimburse me because I lost some rental income. I mean, and I probably I had another guy that was renting my condo. He's probably not going to be there either. I was finally got some decent rentals. It's a big spring break, right, for March. 
but all over the country, people are, are you know losing stuff because of something that's completely beyond their control. But I mean, that's life. Bad things happen. Deal with it, right? The government's not supposed to just make me whole because there was some bad luck out there, and you know, I I, I lost some money that I was going to get. Now, of course, I'm not, you know, pleading. I mean, there are obviously there are people that are in way worse shape than me, you know, as far as how they've been inconvenienced or they've actually got the coronavirus and they're actually dealing with the uh, with the sickness. So I'm not ill. So I'm not saying, hey, feel sorry for me because I lost some rental income. But the point is, this is happening all over the country. People that were going to make some money aren't going to make money. You know, I met this guy that was here uh, that was filming a movie. Uh, he's staying over at the resort, and we start talking. He's a guy from L.A., and he was here uh, with uh, Bruce Willis and um, uh, Megan Fox. And I forget who else, but he's filming a movie, and they, you know, they have a curfew. So they all picked up, and they, they flew back to L.A. I mean, you know, so there were going to be people that were going to get jobs. There were people here that were going to work on the movie, on the set of that movie. Uh, they were expecting to get paid. Now they're not getting paid because the production crew had to leave because they can't film because there's a curfew and they, they need to film at night. And now they can't do it. So so they're gone. I mean, but all kinds of stuff like this is happening all over Puerto Rico and all over the country. And you know what? That's life, right? Sometimes things go wrong. Everything doesn't always come up uh, sunshine and, and, and roses. But he's saying, oh, because it's not your fault, we're going to give you the money. Right. But the bottom line is the government doesn't have any money. The, the government doesn't have this secret pot of money. It has a printing press. Now, the problem is a lot of Americans actually think that that's all you need is a printing press, that as long as you could print money and give it out to people, well, then, you know, there's real purchasing power. There's not. What gives that money value is the goods that we produce, the services that we provide. But if people aren't producing goods, if they're not providing services because they're you know, hold up in their homes, isolating themselves because they don't want to, you know, contaminate anybody, then we're just sprinkling inflation. We're just debasing the value of everybody's savings. We're redistributing wealth. That's all these guys are doing. But what they're really trying to do is buy the votes of the public. But as I was trying to say before I just uh, sidetracked into the political uh, point was that we got the retail sales numbers that came out today and you know they probably got lost in the shuffle nobody really paid attention to them in fact i don't think anybody pays attention to these numbers anymore because they know that they mean nothing because this is a february number and the coronavirus uh really didn't start impacting anything until march but uh february uh retail sales were supposed to go up by 0.2 and they dropped by 0.5 so that was a pretty big number now they did revise the prior month january from up 0.3 to up 0.6. So that was something. But still, the, the miss of minus 0.5 from expecting up 0.2 was much bigger than the 0.3 uh, upward revision. And it shows that the momentum was fading in the month of February. Now, this is going to be a disaster, this number for um, March, although there's obviously a lot of retail spending at supermarkets and drugstores and things like that. Uh, but contrary to what Mnuchin said on the Sunday morning talk shows, that's not because the economy is booming. That's because uh, consumers are scared that they're not going to be able to have any food and they're going to run out of toilet paper. And so they're stocking up. But, you know, I just heard today, too, that Amazon is suspending deliveries on certain things that they're, you know, their warehouses are running out of stuff. And I'm not really sure. But at some point, you know, they're going to suspend delivery on a lot of stuff because they're going to run out of stuff. You know, and a lot of people are buying more stuff on Amazon right now because they're not going out. So Amazon is getting inundated. You know, people don't want to wait in long lines for stuff, so they're going to Amazon. And in fact, that's exactly what people are going to do when they get their $1,000 or $2,000 stimulus checks, right? They're just going to go to Amazon and buy stuff. I mean, it's not going to help the industries that are really hurting, right? It's not going to help the restaurants, the hotels, the airlines, because people aren't doing those things. They're not traveling. They're not eating out. They're staying home. So how is it going to help the economy if we print a bunch of money and send it to people, and then they go on Amazon and they buy some products that were made in China or made someplace else? It just increases our trade deficit. We put more dollars into the economy. I mean, this is not good for the economy, but it's good politics. I mean, the voters like to get a check, and now they're going to think, Oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go vote for uh, Donald Trump because he gave me this money, right? He sent me a check. And this is probably not going to be the only check because they're going to keep on doing this. And I think now Donald Trump, as I said, has a vested interest in elongating the coronavirus threat and erring on the side of you know caution because 
I think we were going into a recession anyway. But what Trump needs to be able to pretend and sell to the voters was that the economy was booming, that everything was fantastic. And then at a left field, you know, this black swan, this coronavirus, and through no fault of his own, right, the economy tanked. And the same thing with the stock market, that we had this great roaring bull market. And the only reason we're in a bear market now is because of this coronavirus. Now, of course, as I mentioned yesterday, the reason the market went down so much was because it was so overvalued uh, before this happened. I mean, if the entire decline in World War II was 30% and we already went down more than that, you know, clearly this is not World War II. It's not nearly as bad as that. So the market was overvalued. It was a bubble, right? So it's hard to say, hey, there's a stock market bubble while I'm president and brag about the fact that a bubble that you inherited got bigger because if it wasn't a bubble, if it was a you know, solid market based on real earnings and real valuation, it wouldn't have collapsed as quickly as it did and as much as it did. And it also shows the fragility of the U.S. economy because this whole bubble is built on a foundation of debt. You know, so he needs to pretend that everything was going great and then the coronavirus, because he doesn't want the voters to blame him. You know, before it was just Powell, right? That was going to be the foil. He was going to have to blame it on Powell. But now Powell's got rates at zero. He's printing money like crazy. He's the biggest money printer yet, right? He's making Yellen and, and, and Bernanke look like a bunch of pikers as far as, you know, what he's doing. So it's going to be hard to blame Powell now. But now he has a better scapegoat, the coronavirus. I mean, clearly this wasn't Trump's fault. He needs to keep this thing going. The longer, the better, because then if the economy stays weak, he's got this excuse. In fact, he was talking about the stock market, and he said that when this crisis is over, the market's going to boom like it's never boomed before, right? It's going to be the biggest rally in the history of rallies when the crisis is over. Well, that means the crisis has to continue until the election. So, he, you know, because otherwise, if the crisis is over and we don't get a booming stock market, then what is he going to say? But as long as we got the coronavirus threat out there, he has a scapegoat. So I think this thing is actually going to be elongated politically. I mean, the Republicans now have to figure out how to play the hand that they've just been dealt. I mean, clearly, initially, this is bad luck for the president politically, right? Something really bad happens on his watch. You know, and, you know, you, you take credit for the good stuff that happens that has nothing to do with you. And then you end up accepting responsibility for the bad things, even though that may have nothing to do with you. But the politicians always, you know, try to you know, play the hand and figure out, OK, what are we going to do? And I mean, maybe you say I'm a little cynical, but, you know, Trump has proven to me that he's a politician. He's not a statesman. He just tries to get reelected. And I, this is, you know, what I think politicians will do, as bad as it actually is, uh, to try to put the country through maybe some unnecessary elongation of the problem just because it creates some political advantage for you. But that's how these politicians work. You know, they don't really care so much about the country. Now, maybe, right, in Trump's mind, it's worth it. Maybe what Trump tells himself is, look, even if I have to create a little extra pain now, if it means that there's four more years of Trump as opposed to a Biden administration, right? Well, then it's worth it, right? Then the ends justifies the means because things will be really bad under Biden. And I agree, they're going to be terrible under Biden because he's going to inherit this uh, recession and he is going to make it so much worse. Now, the Republican Senate is also having a problem with the House bill that I mentioned on the last podcast for the mandatory medical and family leave. I mean, they should have more than just a problem, though. I mean, it should be dead on arrival. The whole concept is absurd. We should not be mandating that employers provide paid leave to their employees. That is something that should be negotiated between the employer and the employee. If that's something that the employee wants, he could bargain for it. And if he wants to trade off uh, lower wages in exchange for more paid leave, then that should be something that he negotiates for. As I said before, when the government mandates that a portion of your salary be delivered to you in the form of paid leave, then they've reduced the available allocation towards your cash wages, which you might actually prefer to have. But, you know, they just think you just demand the employer provide it and the worker gets it for free. The worker gets nothing for free. Workers have to earn everything they get. And if they can't, then they get fired. 
But anyway, so the Senate is concerned, particularly regarding the requirement to pay family leave, because that goes on for three months. Can you imagine paying your workers three quarters or two thirds of their wages for three months while they're not even on the job? What they're pointing out is how are the employers, especially smaller employers, where are they going to get the money? Now, in the bill, there is a provision that you can get a tax credit from the government for the money that you pay. But what if you don't have any profits? What if your business is not making money? What good is a tax credit if you don't owe any taxes? Meanwhile, the employer has to front the money. You have to pay the workers up front. You don't get the tax credit till later on. But if your business is shut down, if you're not getting any revenue because all your workers are home with their kids because they're not in school. So the Senate had a problem with it. Obviously, they weren't going to pass it. So now the House tweaked it a little bit. All the, the, the requirements are the same. They just lowered the, the numbers. So on the two-week permanent uh, paid sick leave, you still get two-thirds of your pay, but it is limited to $511 per day. So that's the maximum out-of-pocket you can be for the two weeks of medical leave. With the three months of family leave, they lowered the limit there to a maximum, rather, of $200 a day per employee. So it still adds up, especially if you happen to be a small business that employs a lot of lower wage workers. Maybe you own a small restaurant. You're already hurting from the higher minimum wage law. And now uh, you have, you know, your workforce taking the day off. Uh, so you're, you know, maybe you're closing up shop because you don't have enough workers, but you're required to pay all this money up front. You know, what the Republicans were worried about is that these provisions in a recession could actually drive some of the small businesses out of business. And they're right. And all the House is doing by lowering the requirement is reducing the number of businesses that will be forced to close as a result of these mandates. But the other problem with them, again, it's the camel's nose under the tent. Once we get these mandates in there, it's only a question of time before we up the numbers higher or put additional similar type mandates on smaller businesses or mid-sized businesses driving them out out of business, which of course simply benefits the larger corporations that have the economies of scale to handle uh, all of these government mandates. And so they love it, right? Because the government drives out the competition. They make sure smaller firms go bankrupt. And more importantly, they raise the barrier to entry. The more mandates, the more requirements that the government puts on businesses, the fewer businesses get started up. And that's bad for competition. So that's bad for the consumer, but it's good for the major companies uh, that have these politicians in their hip pockets. And just to you know, give you an idea of how things are going to be, I was reading uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. And by the way, you know, Biden had a lot of praise for Elizabeth Warren uh, during their debate, which has got some people thinking, you know, maybe she's going to get the nod uh, as the VP slot. We know it's going to be a woman for sure. So she's certainly on the short list. But she came out with a list of conditions that she shared on Twitter. Uh, these are conditions that the companies accepting the federal bailout money must abide to as a condition of receiving the bailout. So number one, the companies must maintain their payrolls and use some funds to keep people working or on the payroll. So they can't fire anybody, which is a problem for companies because, you know, what if they need to let people go? What if the demand is down? What if we're going into a recession, not simply because of the coronavirus, but there's an actual decline in demand? And in order to, you know, maintain the viability of the company, they need to reduce the payrolls. Well, if they accept the bailouts, they, they can't do that. They lose that flexibility. Number two, Companies must provide a $15 minimum wage within one year of the national emergency declaration. $15. Well, now they may have to be paying wages that are uncompetitive with the firms that didn't get bailed out, which is going to put them at a competitive disadvantage in the marketplace. Number three, companies are permanently prohibited from doing share buybacks. So they can never do share buybacks again, 
even if it happens to be a good use of capital. Now, this is the one thing here that, look, I mean, I'm not a big fan of share buybacks, but I think that that should be the decision of the management. You see, if corporations know they're not going to get bailed out if they fail, then they're going to have an adequate amount of cash and they're not going to lever up to do a share buyback. So I don't think that it's something that should be decreed by the government. I think companies and their shareholders should be able to make those decisions. But if you accept the bailout, the condition is that you can never do a share buyback ever again. Uh, next condition, companies are prohibited from paying out dividends or executive bonuses while they are receiving any of the bailout money and then for three years after the bailouts end. So that means the actual shareholders can't get any return on their investments until three years after uh, the bailout funds stop unless they just want to sell their stock, uh, which may depress the price because they, they won't be able to get dividends if that's what they're getting. But look, again, I think that the shareholders should be punished, but by the market, not by the government. And of course, you know, if they're willing to wait, it doesn't mean these companies can't pay dividends at all. It just means that they have to hold on to the cash for a while longer until that three-year period lapses, in which case they can pay special dividends to the shareholders uh, that have hung in there. Another condition, collective bargaining agreements should remain in place and should not be reopened or renegotiated pursuant to this relief program. So they can't restructure any deals that they may have with their labor unions, even if they are unfavorable and uncompetitive. Another condition, companies must set aside at least one seat, potentially two or more on the board based on how much relief they get, right? And these are going to be directors who are representatives of the workers. Look, if the workers want representation, let them buy a bunch of stock. I mean, there's nothing that stops the workers from investing their money in the shares of the company. And if they get enough uh, people, then they can get board representation. But to have board representation, but not to have ownership, that's a big conflict of interest because now they're going to have representatives not looking out for their interest as shareholders but looking out for their interests as employees. And as employees, they just may want to be prioritized in, ahead of the owners of the business. No, just give us higher wages, even if those higher wages impede the profits of the company. Look, if workers want to share in the profits, then they need to share in the risk. They need to take their money and buy stock like everybody else. When you're a worker and you get a wage, you don't take a risk. You're going to get paid what the employer has agreed to pay you and what you've agreed to work for, rain or shine. Whether the company is doing well or not, you get paid first. The shareholders get a dividend only if there's a profit left over because they're taking a risk. Well, if you want to share in the profits, then take the risk. Problem is, Ward wants the workers to share in the profits and not take the risk. What's fair about that? Another condition is that the CEO must be required to personally certify that a company is in compliance and face criminal prosecution for any false certification. So now they subject themselves to not just civil, but criminal penalties if the government determines that something that they did or said was wrong. And then she wants Congress to set up an oversight body modeled on the Congressional Oversight Panel that we had during the bank bailouts, but with real funding and subpoena power, we need real accountability to make sure these conditions are met. So now more government oversight and more regulation, but here's the biggest problem with all of these conditions that are gonna be placed on any company that accepts a bailout. And basically what it guarantees is that they're gonna fail again and they're gonna to need to be bailed out over and over and over. Because once you place all these restrictions on companies, that render them uncompetitive, that require them to pay higher wages than their competitors, that prohibit them from laying off workers when they need to lay off workers because business conditions might have deteriorated, demand might be down, or they find some more efficient way uh, to outsource if their competitors are taking advantage of these efficiencies. But they are prohibited from doing so based on agreement that they made with the government. The government is basically setting these companies up for repeated failure. So we bail them out once, so we're going to have to bail them out over and over and over again. What we need is for these companies to fail, new management to come in and clean house and get some new owners in there. And we need to put an end to the moral hazard. We need to know, companies, executives need to know that if something bad happens, even if it's not your fault, you know, you're going to suffer. 
So play it safe. Don't be up on a high wire uh, without, without a net. Don't over leverage yourself. Don't just spend all your money buying back your stock, right? That, that's the message that needs to be sent. But no, we're going to send the opposite message. We're going to send a message that don't worry. If you fall off that wire, the government's going to catch you. Turning to the gold market, you know, we had another pretty volatile day in the gold markets. Remember when I was doing this podcast last night, uh, we were rallying back from a $70 decline and we were only down about 20 bucks. Uh, and then we had early on like a 5 or $10 rally in the price of gold. And then by the time I woke up this morning, gold was down 40 bucks. It didn't quite take out yesterday's low, but it was down 40 bucks. And by the time the U.S. stock market opened at 930, we had cut those losses to around 10 or 15 dollars. And by the end of the day, we were up close to $20. So we basically made back most, but not all, of yesterday's losses. So gold was down slightly over the last uh, couple of days. But gold stocks, particularly indexes, the junior miners, GDXJ up 23.65% today, GDX up 13%. Both of those indexes were up substantially yesterday too, as I mentioned. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the miners within the indexes, I mean, there are stocks that are basically 40% or more. They closed today 40% higher than where they opened yesterday. The same business and virtually the same price of gold, right? There really is very little difference between the price of gold at the close today and the close yesterday, although there is a difference between yesterday's open and today's close of maybe about $100. But $100 off the price of gold does not change the value of a mining company by 40% uh, overnight. So obviously, this is all the market. This is noise. This is extreme volatility. People forget that stock prices can just reflect the emotions of the buyers and sellers at any particular moment in time. So yesterday morning, after the Fed had, had slashed interest rates to 1% on Sunday uh, and uh, you know, had launched QE, when gold opened down instead of up, people freaked out and they puked out their gold stocks. And they had already clobbered them uh, Friday before the weekend. So people got scared and they were just selling and they didn't even care. It's like, get me out. I won't care. I want out at any price. And they got out at any price, a lousy price, because they, they couldn't be patient. But the people who stepped up and bought got a really, really good price because now, you know, you're up 40% or more. In fact, I think some of these stocks that GDXJ from yesterday's low to today's close is up like 65%. So, I mean, that is an incredible move from the open on Monday to the close on Tuesday. But it's a real good lesson for people who just get really worried about the volatility. You know, I've had clients that have called up and some of them, I can't take the volatility, you know, I got to get out. And I'm like, well, you know, what difference does it make? You weren't going to sell your gold stocks anyway. None of these stocks were going to sell. So don't be scared just because the price goes down because it just means somebody wanted to get out really badly and they didn't care how low the price was. That's all that matters. I mean, does it matter that uh, gold stocks were so low on Monday if they're 30, 40, 50% higher on Tuesday? It doesn't make a difference, right? But what happened is if you really wanted out on Monday morning, you got a lousy price. But that doesn't affect the people who didn't want to get out, who didn't care about the volatility because they're thinking about the long term. Now, as I said yesterday, the fact that gold was down and gold stocks were up was a pretty good sign that we've bottomed out. And today, same thing. Gold was down initially and gold stocks were up. And then by the time gold, gold went up, the stocks were up even more. So now we have the stocks leading the metal which, you know, recently over the last, I don't know how many years, has been a positive sign. Now, we are up against some resistance if you look at the chart of the gold miners. So, you know, we could go back down and retest those lows. You know, we're not out of the woods, although I don't consider it the woods, because if it goes down again, that'll give more clients an opportunity to establish positions at better prices. But if we have another big up move from here, then I would be very confident that the low is in for gold and the gold miners, and we're just going to go for the highs. In fact, if you look at where gold stocks are now, uh, at the current level, they're now back to outperforming the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000. So people, again, are losing less money this year in gold stocks than they are in non-gold stocks. That is very different than the experience in 
2008. But getting back to the, you know, the volatility of the stock market, you know, an example that I like to give to clients when I'm talking to them. And so I might as well just give it on this podcast because then a lot of clients could be listening and it might be helpful. But, you know, stocks are businesses, right? And they just happen to be publicly traded businesses. A lot of people own private businesses, right? They don't go out every day and have an appraisal done of the value of that business. And if one day the appraisal comes in lower than the previous day, they don't freak out. They don't think, oh my God, I better sell my business because it's lost some value. Who cares, right? Nobody tends to care about the value of a private business, but then you put the business on a stock exchange and all of a sudden people care exactly what it's worth uh, from day to day. Now I know you have liquidity. So yes, if you wanna sell, that's what your price is. But, you know, all assets are going to have a lower price if you have one day to sell. I mean, think about it uh, relating to your house, right? A lot of people own homes, right? And there's a market value for a house. You can get a house appraised. But, you know, if you want to sell your house, you list it for sale and it could take months. It could take years for the right buyer to come along to pay what you think your house is worth or even what some appraiser thinks its house is worth. I mean, it, you know, there are a lot of other things that, that impact it. But let's say you have to sell the house fast, which a lot of times people do. People get divorced, somebody dies, and they're in a hurry to sell the house. They clearly don't get as good a price as if they waited for the right buyer. But what if you decided that you were going to sell your house that day? What if you woke up on a Monday morning and you were like, I need out of this house today? right? I just got to get out and I got to get out today, right? Because that's what happens with people when they own a stock. I can't take it. I want out today. Just get me out. Well, they don't get a good price, especially if a lot of other people are, are, are having the same emotion. I mean, if you're the only one panicking, then, you know, you're probably going to get a fair price. But if you're panicking, it's probably because the market is tanking and the market is tanking because a lot of other people are panicking, not just you. Right. So what would happen if not only you decided that you wanted to get out of your house that day, but what if all of your neighbors said, yeah, I want out of my house today, too. And you had to find a buyer that day. I mean, would you be surprised if you got a crappy price? I mean, a price way below the appraised value? Of course you would, because if you had to find somebody willing to step up to the plate and close the sale right away, all cash buyer. Yep, I'll buy your house. Here's the money. You're going to get a lousy price. And if you're dumb enough to hit that bid, well, I mean, that's life. Well, the same thing with the stock market. If all of a sudden people are scared because the coronavirus and, you know, the economies are collapsing and people want out of the stock market, if you want to get out too, if you want to sell your house, then you're going to get a lousy price. And, you know, if you know, let's say you live in a nice neighborhood, but your neighbor, right, has an emergency, they get divorced and they just have to have a quick sale and they sell and, the, and they get much lower than you know your house is worth. Are you gonna say, oh my God, I better sell my house too because my neighbor just sold his house at this low price, so now I wanna sell? No, he had to sell, you didn't. A lot of the people that were selling their stocks yesterday morning, their gold stocks, they didn't have a choice. They probably got a margin call or some of these guys had stop orders in they probably put stops there, you know, and, and then they got stopped out. And a lot of these stops, you know, they're not stop limits where you have a stop and you work a limit. Most people just have a stop order where if the price get hit, it becomes a market order. Well, if you have a lot of stops, all of a sudden the market tanks. And so you end up getting filled at a price that's way below where your stop was. But so I'm sure there was a lot of people that just got, you know, forced out of the market or got scared out of the market. But this is really big volatility. I mean, how would you feel if you sold a stock yesterday and now the stock is 40%, 50% higher the next day? I mean, it would bother me if I did something like that. So that's why I try to keep people, uh, you know, on board and to tune out, right? Don't even look at these prices. If, you know, you're the kind of person that's going to get upset if your account goes down on any given day, you know, just don't look. If you're comfortable with what you're doing, then ride it out, right? I talked to a guy today that sold out of my gold fund, right? I didn't talk to him, I left a message, I didn't even realize he sold it, uh, but he, he got out two days ago and he's in that very predicament. But the question that I wanted to ask was, you know, why did you buy the gold fund in the first place? I mean, what was the purpose of buying it? 
because if you bought it for the same reasons that I recommend it, right, because we're going to have a lot of inflation, the government's going to print a lot of money, stagflation, the Fed's going to go back to zero, we're going to do more quantitative easing, all those things have happened, right? The rationale for wanting to own gold stocks has never been better. So if you wanted to own them two or three or four years ago, what would make you sell them yesterday or the day before yesterday? Just because the price went down? I don't care if the price is going down. All that means is I could buy more. Because if all of the fundamentals are lining up the way I thought they would, then I know I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I mean, the people who own these mining stocks, I believe, are going to make a lot of money. Now, yes, they're speculative stocks, but I think it's a smart bet. I mean, you have a lot of people making idiotic bets, right? Just because other idiots are making the same bet and they feel comfortable. I mean, look at how much some of these stocks have gone down and, you know, they still have a long way to go. Even if we put in a short-term bottom based on all this stimulus, this is still a bear market. So any significant re-rally that we get is a bear market rally. Don't be fooled. But I think overseas, we could be starting bull markets because the valuations there are ridiculous. As I said, foreign stocks sold off by a similar percentage as U.S. stocks, except they never had the big rally. So foreign stocks got dirt cheap. Uh, U.S. stocks are still expensive, right? They're, maybe they're a little bit less expensive than they were before, or maybe even a little bit more, depending on how much their earnings ultimately go down. So there again, you know, even if your dividend-paying foreign stocks have gone down, well, great, now you can buy more and get an even higher dividend. And even if some of these companies have to cut their dividends in the short run, which is possible, and we try to buy stocks that, you know, have lower payout ratios, they have a lot of room and they have good balance sheets, but even if companies have to temporarily reduce their dividends for a quarter or two, you can own these stocks for your entire retirement. So ultimately, the dividends will be restored and you know, you'll get the same as you would get now, even if they go down. So it doesn't matter if stocks that you were planning on holding for five or 10 years or longer, it doesn't matter if during a crisis, some people are foolish enough to sell them at a bargain basement price or have no choice because they over leverage themselves and they have to sell. If you're not in that predicament, if you have a choice, then why do something foolish if you don't have to? No sooner had I finished recording this podcast that I discovered that the Federal Reserve has now launched another bailout, more quantitative easing. They have a new credit facility that is designed to extend credit to the primary dealers. So these are the big banks, right? The big banks that we bailed out in the last financial crisis. Well, you know what? This constitutes another bailout. We're already bailing out the banks because here's what the Federal Reserve is doing. They're going to extend credit to the primary dealers under the facility, and they're going to allow the credit to be collateralized by a broad range of investment grade debt, including commercial paper, municipal bonds, and a broad range of equity securities, not debt, equity, meaning stock. That means that these banks, right, that are over leveraged, just like I've been saying, remember I kept saying the too big to fail banks are bigger now when they failed before, and they're going to be more expensive to bail out this time without officially calling it a bailout. That's what this is. The Federal Reserve is lending money to the primary dealers, and they're going to allow the primary dealers to deposit with the Fed other securities that they can't sell in the market, like bonds, commercial bonds corporate bonds, municipal bonds, and equities. That's stocks. So these big banks can take stock to the Federal Reserve, give it to the Fed, and the Fed is going to give them cash. Now, the stock is collateral for that loan. Well, what if the stock goes down? What if the company goes bankrupt? I mean, why is the Federal Reserve accepting equities as collateral, I mean, it's town amount to printing money and buying stocks because obviously if the loan goes into default, the Fed owns the collateral, which in which case is the stock. But this is the Federal Reserve providing liquidity to a bunch of banks. But wait a minute. I thought all these banks passed the stress test. I thought we wouldn't have to bail them out. This is a bailout, whether they want to call it one or not. And of course, how does the Federal Reserve 
conjure the money into existence that it's going to loan uh, to these banks. And of course, it's a loan, but are they ever going to have to pay it back? Right. Once the money goes out and the collateral comes in, all this collateral that they're going to get, all the muni bonds or the commercial paper or the equities, they're now going to add to the Fed's already ballooning uh, balance sheet. And, you know, the fact that they're doing this This shows you how desperate the Fed is. I mean, I mentioned earlier in this podcast the problems that they were having in the corporate bond market. Well, this is their solution, right? They're going to print more money. They're going to accept these debt instruments as collateral to reliquify banks that might otherwise fail, but for the Fed bailing them out. Now, we'll see how the market responds to this. You know, will they like it? Because, hey, we're getting more cheap money. We don't have to worry about the banks failing. But maybe it's going to scare the markets. Wait a minute. The banks are in that much trouble? We had no idea they were in this much trouble, right? You don't know that they're in trouble until the government steps up and rescues them. So maybe the markets will interpret this negatively. It should be very bullish for gold. I mean, any way you look at it, I don't know how you can put a bearish spin. Uh, so this may make it more likely that... Uh, you know, the gold bottom that I've been speculating on is going to be real and we're going higher. And this should be negative for the dollar. It is negative for the dollar long term. But, you know, we've got this short term uh, credit problem that is actually pushing money into the dollar like it did in 2008, only on a much smaller scale. But once the dust settles, uh, the dollar is going to collapse. And what this is, again, make no mistake about it. This is another bailout for Wall Street. And it's already happening. And the crisis is just getting started. And it's not just the banks on Wall Street that are getting bailed out. It's publicly traded corporations whose stocks are trading on Wall Street. Because after all, this is meant to help all corporations that borrow in the commercial uh, paper market that sell commercial paper because they're trying to keep the rates artificially low. So these heavily indebted um, companies uh, can afford to pay. And of course, by taking stock as collateral, maybe Wall Street firms would have had to unload that stock. Maybe this is stock that they're holding proprietary positions and now they're underwater. And if it wasn't for the Fed loaning against that collateral, they might be forced to sell that collateral, book losses, but also put the stock into the market. So again, this is a major bailout. Everybody is being bailed out and all the money is being printed and everybody thinks it's going to work just because they think it worked last time. It didn't work last time. It failed last time. That's why they're doing it again. But this time, it's not going to create the appearance of working because none of these bubbles are going to get deflated, right? We are going to kill the dollar and we're going to have runaway inflation, just like I've been saying since the beginning. This final dose of quantitative easing, the Fed going all in on QE, this is the overdose that I have been warning about since the very beginning. 